0: The song Amazing Grace uh, is without a doubt one of the most well-known songs in the life of the church. As I make that statement, some of you right now are doing what? That tune just kind of automatically like it comes to your mind when somebody mentions that, right? You ever have that happen? Somebody can say the name of a song and all of a sudden the words just, they, they come. John Newton, the writer of Amazing Grace... Sounds a lot like the Apostle Paul in these verses that we've read this morning. In verses 12 through 17, Paul gives his personal testimony of salvation. In verse 15, Paul says that he is the foremost of sinners. That word foremost means chief or the worst. Uh, in our modern day, uh, Paul was the Mac Daddy of sinners. <laughs> Uh, you hear that term used a lot. Paul was the sinner. Uh, Newton, in the first stanza, stanza of Amazing Grace, writes, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Newton believed that sinful human beings are wretches in desperate need of a Savior. Uh, the idea behind the word wretch is that human beings are depraved. That thought is not well received in our day and time. People are not bad. This is not me saying that. I'm sorry. I need to clarify. That's the view of our culture today. People are not bad. They have simply lost their way. People aren't sinful or wicked. They, They merely have a dysfunction from which they hope to recover from. That's kind of the attitude of our culture today. Here's what I want to say to you biblically. When we downplay our depravity, we minimize the grace of God. Grace is amazing because it saves wretches, not because it helps dysfunctional people become better people. We don't need amazing grace to save us out of our dysfunctions, or we do need amazing grace to save us out of our dysfunctions. In verses 1 through 11, as we looked at last week, Paul spoke of the church's responsibility to guard the gospel. Guard that gospel. Why? Because these false teachers come in. They'll rise up from among you and they'll, they'll lead the disciples away. Guard that gospel. And he spoke of the gospel being the message of all the church's teaching. Anything we teach must have the gospel at the center. And he told the church that we're entrusted with the gospel. Man, what a responsibility. But what a privilege we have of being the church and God entrusting to us the gospel. In verses 12 through 17 that we're going to look at today, if you look at your handout, the main idea is this. Proclaiming and rejoicing in the gospel of God's grace. Proclaiming and rejoicing, <clears throat> excuse me, in the gospel of God's grace. Verses 12 through 14. We outline it this way, testifying of God's grace. That's what Paul is doing. He's giving this testimony here in verses 12-14 of the grace of God. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul had worked with a passion to wipe out Christianity. Paul was very passionate when it came to persecuting and harassing Christians. Paul was dead set on the destruction of the name of Jesus Christ. He rejected Jesus as the Messiah. He rejected Jesus as Lord and he wanted everyone else to get in the boat with him. He wanted everyone else to do the same. And that Paul, that Paul, God called into gospel ministry. And the fact that God would do such a thing amazed the apostle Paul. I said all that to help you better understand when we read verse 12. It says, I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointing me to His service. The Apostle Paul, once a persecutor of the church, a hater of Jesus, Paul is now doing what? He's thanking that Jesus that he despised and rejected, that he hated and and pushed everybody else To hate, He's now thanking Him. Paul is amazed by the fact that one like himself could be called into the service of Christ in his church. Think about that. Where Paul was at and who he was. He's amazed. He's thankful to Jesus that he would not only save him, but then he would call him into the service of his church. The very Jesus he hated and persecuted. Notice what he says there. Appointed Paul to this service. And so he's thankful for it. You remember the story of Paul? If you've read through the New Testament, the book of Acts, you get to chapter nine, and we'll talk a little bit more about this. Paul's on his way to do what? Do his job persecuting Christians, and Jesus appears to him. And listen, if you're if you're looking to be converted like the Apostle Paul, that's probably not going to happen. That's just the way Jesus chose to do it with Paul. He "This Jesus appears to him, and he strikes Paul with blindness." And Paul is converted there on the road to Damascus on his way to do what? Persecute more Christians. And Jesus, Paul says, He appointed me. He's, he's thankful. Paul says, I thank Him who has given me this opportunity, but I thank Him who has given me what? Strength. Strength to do this service came from Christ. The strength to do ministry. And I'm going to clarify something. Ministry is just not what the pastor does. Ministry is what we all do. Right? Ministry is what we all do and the strength for that comes from Christ. Paul knows that it doesn't matter how smart he is. And listen, Paul was very smart. Paul had been trained and educated at the feet of some of the smartest people in Jewish in the Old Testament that had ever lived. Paul said, it doesn't matter how smart you are. And he was smart. It doesn't matter how much he knows. And Paul knew a lot about the Old Testament Scriptures. What makes the difference in the success of Paul's ministry is the strength that Jesus gives him to do that work. Paul is thanking Jesus for the service, the opportunity to serve, but he's thanking Jesus for the strength to do that ministry. And here's what I want to help you how to apply this. We need to remember that. In gospel ministry, the determining factor is not our abilities. Not our gifting, it's what the Lord does in us. That's the way gospel ministry is. And I'd say this, if some of you are thinking about going into gospel ministry... I think you should go and train and be equipped if God affords you that opportunity. But listen, don't you rest on your gifts and your abilities. You need to be dependent upon the grace and the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ to carry out any ministry He's given you. All ministry must be done with a mindset of total dependence upon the Lord's strength you hear what I said? Any kind of ministry you would do, regardless of how you may serve in the church, you need to be dependent upon the Lord. And here's my question for you. How much time do you spend in prayer asking God to help you fulfill your ministry? Man, over the last several weeks, I've been convicted. And when I say convicted, it's like somebody has punched, given me the, you watch NCIS and gives, gives the head slap. That's what I feel like's happened to me some days. And I'm thinking, Lord, forgive me. I I got all this stuff to do, and I get up every day, and you know, I have my prayer time. There's times during the day when you know something will come up, and it's like, Yes, I need to do that. And I begin fretting and worrying, How am I going to do that? And God says, Well, have you ever thought about praying and asking me to help you do that? And it's just kind of like, Yeah, do, do we do that? Do, are we dependent upon the Lord and His strength to do what He's called us to do? Notice. Paul says, I thank him who's given me strength, Christ Jesus. And how does he refer to Jesus? I'm just going to touch on this a little bit and we're going to move on. What? Lord, you've heard me say this and I'll say it again. You can't have Jesus as Savior and not have him as Lord. It just does not work. I thank him who's given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord. Why? Because he judged me faithful. Now, is Paul saying he thanks jesus that he looked down and said you know paul's a he's a very faithful guy i think i'll call him into ministry no paul is saying something very different paul is amazed that god would look down at him and count him trustworthy to take care of his people i can't believe paul saying that the lord in his mercy would not only save me but that he would let me minister to people that i had once hated Paul hated Christians and now God has saved him. He's done a work of transforming grace in his life. And Paul says he's appointed me to this ministry and he's found me faithful. He just hasn't saved me, but he's put me in this ministry to minister to the people I once hated. Paul, Paul's saying to Timothy here that the gospel, that gospel ministry, I'm an example that a wretched sinner like me Could be shown the forgiving grace of God that I could be called into his service. If you're thinking about the Apostle Paul and what he was, isn't it amazing to you that, you know, it's not amazing that he would save him, but that he would call Paul to be what? Write the majority of the New Testament and help equip and train people to lead the church. Isn't that an amazing thing that God would give him that ministry? And Paul is just. He's in awe that God would do that for him. And say, so that's the mindset you and I need to have, especially those who are vocational mentors like myself. We, we need to stop and think that God didn't look at us and go, hey, he's a faithful guy. He's got all these abilities. I need to make him a pastor. No, that's God's grace giving you that responsibility. that word service there that Paul mentions... Appointing me to His service. That word service means lowly, humble service. Paul says, Jesus called me to serve, to serve His people, to serve Him. That's what I am. I'm a servant. And can I tell you something? That's what true gospel ministry is. It's serving other people. Serving other people. And let me tell you something. When you serve other people... Here's what you can expect as application. Uh, I had, a, I had a, a person in ministry that I deeply respect tell me one time. He says, um, you know that sheep are like all other animals. They have mouths and they have teeth and they will bite you. And I was like, it took me a few days, but I figured out what he was talking about. The sheep will bite you. Be prepared. And when we serve one another in the gospel, that means we need to expect to be treated like servants every once in a while. Some of us don't like that, right? Remember, the next time you're serving uh, in ministry in this congregation, when you're loving someone and they treat you like a servant, remember, you're just getting a little taste of what Jesus went through in His gospel ministry. And you're no better than He is to suffer at the hands of other people. And here's what I would say again in application. Be thankful for the undeserved privilege of serving Christ and His people. Man, that's a privilege. That is a great responsibility to have to serve Jesus and His church. Sunday school teachers, deacons, nursery volunteers, Good News Club volunteers, pastors, church members, all of us are servants. Now agreed. We're servants at different levels within God's makeup of the church and how he's given responsibility, but we're we're all servants. You know, we saw a good display of that yesterday, right? Man, people were busy working and serving and ministering to other people. And some of you got dirty, right? Some of you got hot. Some of you having to chase those balls all over the place. The kids were supposed to be throwing them here, but they were going over here, and you just having to run them down. See, so that was that was being a part of God's church, serving other people, lowly, humble service. And here's what I want to say: the goal of the gospel is not to get a bunch of people to be churchgoers for an hour or two on Sunday. Its goal is to transform sinners into servants of Jesus who live 24 hours a day, 7 days a week so they might serve him. So your serving Jesus doesn't begin at 9:45 on Sunday morning and end at 12:10 or 12:15. Okay? The goal of your life is to live 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Three hundred and sixty-five days a year, so that you might serve him. And listen, what a privilege it is to serve the living God. We'll see that more importantly when we get to verse 17, verse 13. Here Paul remembers what he was and is and, and apart from the grace of Christ. Notice how he characterizes himself. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. Insolent opponent, that means he was a bully. That's what Paul was. He was a bully, and he was a good bully too. And, and Paul, Paul was not exaggerating. Paul was the ringleader of the persecution of the church. And just so you can have a good idea of the Apostle Paul, let me read you some verses, and particularly from the book of Acts. Just make a note and listen as I read. Uh, some describing Paul, and then Paul describing himself. Acts chapter 8 verse 3. But Paul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. When you saw Paul coming, everybody dove on the bed. You don't want to mess with Paul. Acts chapter 9 verse 1, in the chapter in which we see the conversion of Paul. In Acts chapter 9 verse 1. Breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Did you hear that word? Murder? Paul didn't stop at nothing in persecuting the church. Acts chapter 26, verses 9-11. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. You know the story of Stephen. When they stoned Stephen to death, you know who was standing there holding everybody's coats while they did that, right? The Apostle Paul. Verse 11 says, And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them, even to foreign cities. Paul said, I went wherever I could find them and I drug them out and I either put them in prison or we stoned them to death. Does that give you a picture of who the Apostle Paul is. Even though I was formerly, he says, a blasphemer and a persecutor and an insolent opponent, and yet God showed what? Mercy. Why? Mercy. Notice what he says: Mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. Now, don't misunderstand, Paul. Paul's not saying God showed me mercy because I was ignorant. He's not he's he's not telling you the reason, the ground on which God showed him mercy because I was ignorant. Uh, This does not mean that ignorance and unbelief somehow qualified Paul for salvation or made his actions less sinful. He was still guilty. (coughs) Paul is saying God had mercy on Paul's desperate spiritual condition. His ignorance and his unbelief. Paul received mercy because God is merciful. That's what he's saying. It it was only by the grace of God that Paul was saved when he was lost and enabled to see that he was blind. That's what Paul's saying. I was ignorant in my unbelief. I didn't know, and God in His mercy did what? Came to him and opened his eyes to the fact that he was lost. And God and, and Paul is just overcome with the mercy that God showed him. You remember last week the false teachers and we talked about them who were troubling the church by teaching that the way of righteousness is the way of what? Keeping the law. And if you keep the law, you're what? Do good. Keep the law and you're right with God. Paul's saying, let me tell you something. I kept the law. I was more zealous than anybody who came to the law. And if anybody could have been made right with God, it was me. But I found out that I needed the righteousness of God apart from the law. And I found it in the gospel. I found it in Jesus Christ. God showed me mercy. He showed me I was a sinner. He showed me I was lost and allowed me to see the gospel. Paul's saying, in spite of my ignorant unbelief, God showed me mercy. If you're sitting here this morning, you know Jesus, it's all of God's mercy. It's all of God's mercy that He would allow you to hear the gospel. And then come to your hard, calloused heart and take away your blindness and break that hard heart and say, come to me. It's all of God's mercy. (coughs) Christian, you need to understand the inability of trying to be good and of keeping the law to make yourself right with God. And you need to understand you need mercy. Those things have to be understood in order to be ministers of the Gospel in the church. You must know yourself and declare it to others that the only way of being declared right with God is the gospel. It's the work of Jesus. It's the work of the Spirit through the Word of God, drawing us to trust in Christ alone for salvation, the way He is offered in the gospel. In other words, when you're trying to share the gospel with somebody, don't brag on you. Man, you brag on Jesus and His mercy. That's what the Holy Spirit's going to use to draw them to Himself. Verse 14. Not only is there mercy from God to receive the message of the gospel, there's also grace. And what does he say? And the grace of our Lord did what? Overflowed to me. Who is the Apostle Paul? Who was the Apostle Paul? Let me stop right here and tell you something. You heard me say this. If you want to share your testimony with somebody, and you don't, you're don't, you thinking, I, I know the gospel, but I don't really know what to do, and I've told you tell them about life before Jesus... Then Jesus came in life after Jesus. That's what Paul's doing here. Here's what I was. Jesus came. Here's what I am now. That's how you can show the Gospel to people. They can't argue with that. And the grace of our Lord, what overflowed to me? Grace is the undeserved, unmerited favor of God. Grace is receiving what you don't deserve. And Paul said He received grace in superabundance. It overflowed. Saving grace, listen to me, is grace that overflows. Some of you will know the, the song when I begin to read you the words. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord. Grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured, there where the blood of the Lamb was spilled. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is what? Greater than all my sin. Abundant grace was poured out to sinners through the blood of Christ and His death on the cross. Also, Paul is telling the Christians to be mindful of the transforming power and the sufficiency of the grace of Christ. He says, and the grace of our Lord overflowed to me with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Paul says, I was not only forgiven, he was not only declared right with God. Paul says, I was changed. Paul is saying this, when God's grace got hold of me, the grace of God and the gospel did what the law had never done in me. It put faith and love in me. Something I never had before. That is, what he's saying here is it made me one who believed in God. I I believed in His promises. I believed in His Word. And one who loves as Christ has called us to love. In other words, God's grace in me produced faith and love, which only come through Christ. Here, Here Paul is referring to the faith that we have in Jesus and our love for God. If you remember back in verses 5 and 6 of chapter 1, Paul condemned the false teachers for turning away from faith and love. But by contrast, Paul received faith and love when he came to know Jesus. This contrasts. Paul is saying, this is the difference between the true gospel and the false gospel. Before, it was not there, but now... Those things are in my life. When God's grace transforms the sinner's heart, there's always faith. There's always trust in Jesus. There's always a love for God. A love for God that's evidence and a love for what God loves. How do I know when I'm loving God right? You love what God loves. A love for holy living. A love for what God loves. His mission to save the lost. Loving what God loves is a love for the church. And listen to me, by the way, that love were to be there, whether they do everything you think they ought to do or not. Whether they get everything right or not, we still love the church, right? God didn't say, love my church if dot, 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 they get it all right. He said, love them anyway. This faith and this love clarify the true gospel, as I said, from the false gospel. This this faith, trusting God for all things, and a love for what God loves, is evidence of true salvation. That's what Paul is saying. Verses fifteen and sixteen. Grace for the worst of sinners. Verse fifteen. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. If someone ever says, can you give me one verse that talks about the gospel? 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 15. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. This is the direct opposite again of what we saw last week in verse 6 where we see the words vain discussion and or worthless talk. Here in verse 15 are the words that are entirely what? Trustworthy. And here they are. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. All of us are sinners. And Paul said, Christ came to save us. He saves all who turn from their sin and trust in Christ. All of us are in need of salvation. This verse tells us that Jesus came to save what? Sinners. And if Jesus came to save sinners, apparently we need what? Saving. Paul is saying you can stake your life on these words. If there were no other words in the world, these would be sufficient for you. Jesus Himself said in John 14, 6, I am the truth. I'm the truth. In John 17, 17, Jesus says your word is truth. In John chapter 10, verse 35, Jesus says the Scriptures cannot be broken. Regardless of what our culture may say, that the Bible is old and antiquated and out of date, there's a Greek word for that. And what is it? Hogwash. This is trustworthy and full of acceptance. This is the truth because it comes from the one true God. Verse 15, Paul says, The saying is trustworthy and and what? Deserving of what? Full acceptance. The gospel is for all sorts and conditions of men. These words, Jesus came into the world to save sinners. These words are true. And therefore, everybody should accept them. These words are to be wholeheartedly accepted. The Gospel is about Jesus. This is what Paul says is worthy of all acceptance. This is what Paul says is true. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Notice it says, Jesus, what? Came into the world. God. Became a man in Jesus. The Son of God left heaven and became what? A man. And He did that for what reason? To save sinners. That is, Jesus came to rescue us from our sin and eternal damnation. Jesus rescues us by living a perfect life for us. And then dying on the cross to pay the penalty. Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners. That's the gospel. Jesus came for no other reason but to save sinners. Now, you say, well, there had to be other reasons. Those other reasons flow out of Jesus coming to save sinners. That's the priority. Jesus came to save sinners. Notice again in verse 15. Sinners of whom I am the foremost. Paul calls himself the foremost, the worst, the chief of sinners. Paul makes the point that Jesus came to save Personally, that's what He's saying. And by doing so, I think this is Paul saying, I'm inviting you to do the same. Repeat after me. Everybody awake. Christ Jesus came into the world world. to to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Jesus didn't come to save sinners in general. He came to save you in particular. You becoming a Christian means making a personal commitment to trust Christ, a personal confession of your sin and trust in Jesus. You're not able to receive God's grace until you admit you're a sinner because Jesus came to save sinners. Here's a question I found myself asking this week, and I want to ask it of you do you believe that you're among the worst of sinners? Oh, yeah. The answer is yes. Now, there are those who object to the biblical teaching of sin because they think that people shouldn't get down on themselves. There's a lot of preachers who preach that. Let me give you one for example. Everybody remember the preacher under glass? Robert Schuller, The crystal... Cathedral? We shouldn't offend anyone's self-concept. I don't think anything has been done in the name of Christ and the banner of Christianity that has proven more destructive to human personality and hence counterproductive to the evangelism enterprise that the often crude, uncouth, unchristian strategy of attempting to make people aware that they're lost and their sinful condition. He needs to put his Bible. He just needs to bear it. Well, y'all know he died not long ago, right? And I'm, not, I'm not criticizing and 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 pointing him out because of that. But if that's the only thing you got to say, don't call yourself a preacher. Don't call yourself a preacher of the gospel. You, you just need to move on. And as Paul grew in grace, and as any believer grows in grace, they also grow down in their estimation of themselves. Can I tell you that the longer I'm saved, the worse I figure out how bad I I, I, I find out just how bad I am. Which makes God's grace even more. Notice what Paul says there. This word, These words he chose are very... Important. I am the worst of sinners. Not I was the worst of sinners. I am as in the present tense. Our need of the gospel does not end when we get saved. Because afterwards we're still sinners. We need to go back to the good news of God's mercy every single day. Here's what I would say to you in applying this. The more you understand and repeat to yourself gospel truth the more you'll understand how deep a sinner you really are. And how overflowing God's grace really is. That's what Paul's saying here, right? The more he thought of who he was, the more glorious God's grace become. I ask this question again. Do you believe you're the worst of sinners? This idea should help you when you gather for worship with other sinners. When you gather for the right reason. If your your heart and your attitude is that of worship, if you you seek to sing to Jesus and pray to Jesus and seek to edify one another and to study God's Word. If you lift your heart to the Lord as, and as you do, you you see your former self. If you see your sinful heart, then you then you think to yourself that God has shown overflowing mercy to me. Do you know that's why God called us in Hebrews and commanded us to gather together? It's because when we sit on the pew as redeemed the worst of sinners and we sing together, and we study together, and we pray together, we're doing what? We're telling other people, I'm a dirty sinner, but God's grace has overflowed to me. That's supposed to inspire your brother and your sister to go, yes, God's grace is great, and we worship Him. That's why we're here today. Verse 16, But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience and example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. He says, but I received mercy. Why? For this reason. He tells us why God was merciful. He tells us why He was saved. That in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display what? His perfect patience. It was through saving Paul that Jesus would what? Display His perfect patience. Listen, patience here means to be patient with people. Some of you are grinning. Yeah. That's tough, right? The point is that if Jesus was patient with who? The foremost, the worst of sinners. If Jesus is long suffering and the worst of sinners, no one is beyond the reach of God's grace. Some of you got somebody in mind right now, right? You're going, ain't no way that person ever gets saved. Right? You meet them on the road some days. They pass by, you go. Ain't no way that guy ever gets saved. You've done it. I've done it. Then I read passages like this and I go, Oh no. No one's beyond the reach of God. Notice it says, As an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. Paul, the worst of sinners. And by the way, as I said this, There's a lot of Pauls, the worst of sinners. To all lost sinners, Paul is an example. Paul was proof that God can save anybody. If you're here today and you think that you're beyond God's saving grace, you need to look at Paul. He was a blasphemer of God. He persecuted Christians. Have you ever, as a Christian, run into an old classmate and found out that that person had been saved by the grace of God? And you go, Wow. You ever done that? Can I tell you that there are a lot of people I run into when I go home for a visit and they think, Christian, you preacher, there ain't no way. You're a a pastor. How did that happen? I'm not saying that to brag on my simple past, but on the overflowing grace of God in my life. How is God's saving grace applied to the worst of sinners? How is the saving grace of God applied to any sinner? Notice verse 16. Those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. With Paul as an example the worst of sinners, and yet God saved him. What encouragement! What hope! And with all that hope, there's only one thing left for you to do, and that's believe in Jesus. You're sitting here today, you're going, man, I'm beyond the grace of God. i got issues, preacher. We all got issues. Paul had issues, but they, those issues weren't too big for the grace of God. Verse 15 told us that Jesus came into the world to save sinners. All must believe in Christ for eternal life. Paul says, I'm an example of God's perfect patience. If He can save someone like me, then He can save anybody. Notice here, the words were what? Who were to believe. Literally, that means who are about to believe. That's what that's meaning. I'm an example. You're an example of God's overflowing grace in your life towards people who are about to believe. What does that tell you? There's people out there that's going to hear you. Not all of them, but there are people that are going to hear and they're going to believe in Christ. In other words, no potential believer needs to despair. That he's too far from God. He's too hard of a case for God. God, Can I tell you something? God delights in hard cases. Do you know why? He likes to put His glory on display when He saves those people you and I think are just so far gone that nothing can help them. If you'll believe that Christ will save you, then you'll have eternal life because Paul used God and put Him as an example. Verse 17. Here we have... Paul's response to God's grace. Give praise to the God of grace. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. He says to the King of the ages, the ages that refers to the fact that God had no beginning and will have no end. He exists outside of time. Though he, he acts within it, he exists outside of it. God is the King of the ages, now and forevermore. Then notice where he says, God is immortal. God is imperishable. He's incorruptible. He'll never get tired. He never changes. He has no loss of power. He'll never know death or decay. Then He says He is the invisible, the only God. In other words, God's beyond the limits of what we can see or imagine. He's the only God, and we're definitely not God. Notice what He says. We're about to to land the plane here. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God. What does he say that's supposed to go to that king? Honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. When you stop and think about what God has done in your life, if you're a child of God, if you truly know your sins have been forgiven, you can't help but praise God for the gospel. You can't help but praise Him if you sit and think about what God has done in your life. All we can do is bow and wonder and worship that such a being could save undeserving sinners like us. When you do that, here's here's what I tell you can happen. Here's what Paul is what Paul's doing in verse 17. There'll be times when you find your heart welling up with spontaneous worship of God when you start meditating and thinking about the gospel. If you can't remember the last time you did that, maybe it's because you don't pause often enough to remember your experience of God's overflowing grace in your life. If you're here today thinking you are a good person and you can be right with God, I have some bad news for you. You can't. But if you're here today realizing that you can't be good enough to be right with God, then I have some really good news for you. And that is that God knows that because God knows you. And God has provided His Son in the Gospel so that as you trust in Him, you are made right with God. Isn't the Gospel good news? Isn't it wonderful news to know that God would save wretched sinners like us? The worst of sinners. Let's pray.